Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Sam. I work here in the college, and it is my uh, delight and honor this afternoon um, to welcome our speaker for today. Uh, Dr. Sage is a consultant clinical scientist in histocompatibility and immunogenetics, um, and she's a fellow of the Royal College of Pathologists with whom we're working on this event. Um, it's a co-badged event, which gives us great delight as well. Uh, Dr. Sage has been working in this field for some time, and she's currently based at the NHS Blood and Transplant Centre in Tooting and plays an active role in education and training in this field, for example, as chair of the Education Board of the British Society for Histocompatibility and Immunogenetics. And today, as you can see, she'll be talking about the pathologist's role as secret heroes in transplantation, and I'm intrigued as to what we'll learn today. <laughs> and if you have time to take some questions at the end. Yeah. Thank okay, you very thanks much. very much, Sam. Uh, welcome, everybody. Um, I was intrigued by the uh, title of the, um, the presentation that I've been given, and uh, so I thought I'd think about how one might define a hero. Well, this is my hero, um, Mr. George Clooney, but it might not appeal to everybody, but when you actually look at how you define a hero, perhaps in the dictionary, um, you, might, you might think that uh, a hero could be a person noted for feats of courage or perhaps nobility of purpose. So I hope today that I will show you the role of the scientist in transplantation perhaps does allow us to think that we might be secret heroes. So when we think about transplantation, we need to think about the multidisciplinary team that's involved in making a transplant take place. First of all, we have um, the nurses, and the nurses are involved, um, first of all, at the stage of organ donation, so they talk to the, the donor families, they, they discuss the, the, the trauma that they're going through and the requirements if their loved one wants to go forward and, and donate an organ. In addition to these um, senior nurses of organ donation, there are also nurses involved at the recipient centre, and those are the nurses talking to the potential um, recipient of the, the transplanted organ and um, discussing what's going to happen with those patients. So there's a whole ream of, of nurses involved in the process. Secondly, we come to the scientists uh, working behind the scenes in the labs, and um, I'm going to focus more on our role um, later on. In the UK, there is a process by which organs are allocated so that everything is fair and transparent and we have equitable access to transplantation. And this is all organised by NHS Blood and Transplant and it's the organ donation and transplant part of that organisation that manages a national transplant waiting list. And so these uh, people are also involved in the allocation process for organs um, for transplantation. Now, organs can be donated and then transplanted all over the country, and in fact, obviously also within Europe. So transport and the transport logistics are also important in making sure that organs get from the donor hospital to the recipient hospital as quickly as possible, so that we don't delay um, the, the transplant process at all. And finally, as we are here in the Royal College of Surgeons, we have the surgical team. Now, the surgical team are involved at two stages of the transplant process. They're involved initially at the point of organ retrieval, so they go to the donor hospital and they carefully retrieve the organs that are going to be donated. And then another surgical team is involved at the recipient hospital where they're going to transplant the donated organs. So there's a range of people involved in transplantation, some of which are more at the forefront um, of, of what goes on, and some are working hard behind the scenes. But this is the challenge that we all face um, in, in organ transplantation. Um, this slide will hopefully illustrate to you the, the problem that we have with regards to the number of donors and the number of patients waiting on the transplant waiting list. So the, the line at the top um, will show you the number of patients currently waiting for a transplant in the UK. And the bars at the bottom of the graph 
show you the number of donors shown in blue and the number of transplants that occur each year. So you can see the massive gap between the patients waiting for a transplant and the numbers of donors and transplants that actually come forward and are performed. So it's our challenge for everyone working in the transplant field to make sure that we make the best use of those precious donated organs and they go to, to patients that will give a long and hopefully successful graft function and outcome. So coming back to the pathologist, um, the, the scientists, and I'm going to talk about the scientists who work in, in my laboratory, in my fields, um, they're working behind the scenes to enable and facilitate the process of transplantation to happen. And the work that they do is required um, before any transplant uh, uh, can go ahead, really, some more so than others. So kidney transplants require a lot more testing before um, the, the transplant goes ahead um, because we have a slightly longer time frame available to us. We have between tw 12 and 20 hours before the uh, transplant takes place uh, in which we can do the tests that are involved um, to, to make sure that uh, the patient and donor are compatible. But in other forms of transplantation, um, in heart and lung transplants, that um, time is much reduced to between four and six hours. So it means that a lot of the work has to be done in a preemptive way in those areas of transplantation. So I'm going to focus on the work that um, the scientists do to facilitate kidney transplants. So you will have heard in, in the introduction that I work in a field called histocompatibility and immunogenetics. And I thought, because most people um, find this a little bit of a mouthful and we tend to refer to it as H&I, and, um, and histo is um, an, another word meaning tissue. So really what we're about is looking at compatibility between tissues, between recipients and donors. And we look at this for solid organ transplants, such as kidney, heart and pancreas, and um, lungs, and also we're involved in matching patients and donors for hemo, um, hematopoietic stem cell transplants as well. And then the immunogenetics part of my field is really the investigation of the genes involved in the immune response. And so a lot of the um, technology that we use in the laboratories is based on using DNA as a starting product, and we can investigate a person's tissue type using these technologies. So I'd like to give you a little bit of a history, if I may, before I talk in more detail about the scientists, to try and set the scene for, for how um, the H&I laboratory and the scientists that work there has come um, to be, really. Um, as you may well know, the first successful kidney transplant occurred in 1954 um, by uh, Joseph Murray, who performed this operation in Boston in the USA. And this was performed between genetically um, related twins and was very successful. However, subsequent transplants um, between unrelated individuals remained a lot more problematic and the transplant really didn't work overly well and was often rejected. And so um, it was unclear at that point really what was causing that rejection. Um, but certainly there must be some um, something uh, within our um, genetic coding that was causing that. Because genetically identical twins, the transplants were um, very successful. And it was actually back in the, the decade before then um, that a lot of work was going on in trying to understand the immunology behind transplantation and why grafts were being rejected. And um, Sir Peter Medawar won the Nobel Prize for his work in developing the theories of transplant immunology. And a lot of this work was actually done in mouse um, models where they transplanted skin grafts from one identical um, strain of mice to another and the skin graft was very successful and very healthy. However, when they transplanted a skin graft from one strain of a mouse to a different strain of mouse, that skin graft was not 
accepted by the host and was rejected. If they repeated that same experiment with the same mouse and the same stra different strain of mouse, then that rejection response the second time round was much faster. And through a number of similar experiments, um, the, the first sort of concepts of transplant immunology came about and uh, the understanding that foreign tissue was rejected by cells in the immune system. These are white blood cells that we call um, leukocytes. So following the work of Medawar and his colleagues, we now understand that graft rejection is a donor-specific response. So um, it, 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 it is directly related to the donor that um, the, the patient or recipient is rejecting. The rejection process itself can develop memory, and that was shown through the mice models where when an experiment was repeated with the same mouse, the rejection response was much faster. So therefore, the, mem the immunological memory has been developed. So when exposed to that same stimulus, the response is much faster. And it was finally understood that rejection can occur through both these uh, white cells in the immune system and also as a result of the antibodies that some of these white cells produce. Now, it wasn't till the 1960s that Jean Dorsey and his co-workers um, then discovered what we now call the human leukocyte antigen system. And it is this system that we now understand to be the main target of this immune response in the rejection um, of transplanted tissue, these human leukocyte antigens. And in order for most transplants to be successful, it's important to ensure that the patient and donor are compatible for these HLA molecules. So now in the UK, the majority of um, solid organs are allocated on the basis of matching as closely as possible the HLA type of the patient with the HLA type of the donor. This is even more important in the bone marrow transplant setting where you will hear sometimes um, on the news big donor campaigns to try and recruit unrelated donors to join the bone marrow donor registries. And there are now uh, 15 or 16 million unrelated donors worldwide on different registries ac across the world to try and um, facilitate this really close matching between the HLA um, molecules of patients who need a, a bone marrow transplant to treat leukemia, for example. So back to the solid organ setting. All of this work um, in the uh, 40s to the 60s then allowed us to develop a, a clearer understanding, really, of what the main barriers are to transplantation. Because if you really think about what is happening when someone undertakes a transplant, you are taking a kidney from one individual you are transplanting it into a patient whose kidneys are not functioning. And following that procedure, that foreign, if you like, kidney then starts to function to allow that patient to come off of dialysis and to all intents and purposes have a normal life. And that is quite a remarkable feat when you really think about what's going on. And I hope that I'll try and explain why that's so remarkable really because we uh, our immune system has evolved to reject anything that's foreign so when we have an infection when we have a cold we want our immune system to recognize that we've got a cold virus or a bacteria and we want it to be able to say hang on a minute there's something foreign to us here and we're going to attack and reject that the problem is that when we come to transplantation that same response is then recognising the transplanted organ as foreign. And that is not what we want to do in the transplant setting because it will result in rejection of the transplant. So we now understand that there are two main barriers 
for transplantation. One is the ABO blood group. And um, just as is in blood transfusion, in solid organ transplantation, we need to ensure that um, organs are ABO compatible when they're transplanted. So here we can see um, a patient who is blood group A, for example, at the top, um, can receive a kidney from a donor who is either blood group A or blood group O. Um, someone who is blood group O can only receive a kidney transplant from a donor who is blood group O. And you will see right at the bottom of the slide that uh, a patient who is a blood group AB is known as a, a universal recipient, if you like, because they can receive kidneys uh, from donors who are blood group A, blood group AB, blood group B, and blood group O. And the reason that uh, those patients can receive um, kidneys from that range of blood groups is because uh, they have not produced any um, anti-A or anti-B antibodies and these antibodies are naturally occurring antibodies that an individual makes against the opposite blood group if you like so a person who is blood group A will make anti-B antibodies a person who is blood group B will make anti-A antibodies but if you express both A and B then you make no anti-A or anti-B antibodies so therefore you can um, accept quite readily um, blood or solid organs from the whole range of blood groups. Now if we come back to HLA, um, much of the work after um, Dorsey realised that um, the genes that encode these proteins are located on a small chromosome called chromosome 6 and they form an area called the major histocompatibility complex. And within this region of the, the genome, there's a, a vast array of genes, many of which are the most polymorphic, most different uh, within the entire genome. Most of the genes in this area are um, involved in coding for um, proteins that form part of the immune response. And these HLA molecules are involved in the recognition of self and non-self. So as I've described, the, they allow us um, to survey, if you like, any potential infections that we may have. And if we, are, if we do have an infection, then they present small fragments of that virus or bacteria to the immune system, to the white cells within the blood, to start to initiate an immune cascade to try and fight that infection. Now, that's all well and good in the, trans in the normal um, setting of immunity. And I'd like to just talk you through why these proteins form such a massive barrier in the transplant setting. So please bear with me, because I know this slide is a little bit um, complicated. But what we've got on... Um, I haven't got a pointer. So on this um, side is the way in which peptides are presented in the normal immune response. So shown in the bottom in blue, you might see that this is the recipient antigen-presenting cells. These are cells in the immune system. And they're presenting small fragments of the donor HLA shown in pink. These are fragments of the HLA molecules that are shed from the kidney when they're transplanted, and they're presented by these antigen-presenting cells to the white cells in the immune system, the T cells. And it's this presentation which forms the same process as the process by which bacteria and viruses are presented to the immune system. But you'll see on the other side of the slide the direct allo recognition. This is the reason why the HLA system is such a major barrier to transplantation. Here we have a setting where a foreign HLA protein can be recognised by a patient's recipient T cells in its intact form. So if you bear with me, the donor antigen-presenting cell in blue is within the kidney when it's first transplanted. It's expressing the donor HLA proteins on its surface. And that donor HLA protein is interacting directly with the patient's own T cells. 
And that interaction is sometimes much stronger than the interaction um, of our own T cells with antigen-presenting cells. So it's a super immune response, if you like. And often that interaction will activate a large number of recipient T cells to then start the immune cascade and potential graft rejection. So it's because there are these two routes by which HLA molecules can be recognized by the immune system, which makes HLA such a big barrier in the transplantation. And I'm just show you there, in the center there is an antigen presenting cell and it's interacting on either side with um, T cells. So this is how the cells interact and start to initiate the immune cascade. So what this means in the transplant setting is that if we don't do something to try and control that interaction, we will end up with rejecting um, the kidney transplant unless the donor and the recipient HLA proteins are identical, which is why the genetically identical twin transplants worked so well back in the 1950s. So first of all, we have our interaction of HLA and, uh, and the immune system. And this interaction can activate those T cells and they produce a lot of signaling proteins. And these signaling proteins, or cytokines, um, then cause a, a recruitment of lots of the immune cells to the point of the transplant. So this is when the transplant starts to come under attack from the immune system. And that attack can be through a number of different effector processes that all start to come together to, to start to kill and destroy the transplanted graft cells. You can get um, a cell-mediated cell um, attack of the graft cells. There are other white cells called B cells which produce antibodies, and these antibodies can then start to attack the transplanted kidney cells. And then you can get um, the macrophage attack through inflammatory mediators, and this cascade of immune um, attack can cause the, the transplant to be rejected. Now, obviously, you saw that the numbers of patients on the waiting list and the number of donors and transplants, there's a big gap. So we need to ensure that this process of rejection is managed as carefully as we can to make sure that we make the best use of the, the donors that we and the organs that we do have available for transplant. So how can we do this? There is one way we can do it, and that is through immunosuppression. And all recipients of solid organ transplants need to take a combination of immunosuppressive drugs for the life of that transplant to ensure that the transplant is not rejected. But um, immunosuppressive drugs, whilst they um, dampen down the rejection response, will also mean that that recipient is more vulnerable to infections because essentially they're damping down the immune response in total. So another way in which we can try and reduce that immune activation is by HLA matching as closely as possible. And this is where we're coming back now to the role of the scientist working behind the scenes. So the H&I scientists will investigate and establish a person's <coughs> tissue type, their HLA type. And this is done for all patients who um, need a solid organ transplant. So when they have their workup in hospital, samples are sent to the laboratory for HLA typing so that when they are registered on the transplant waiting list, their details along with their tissue type are registered so that um, they can be part of an allocation run for a donor. The HLA type is also um, undertaken for all donors for transplant. And I'm going to talk through the process of um, HLA typing that we use for deceased donor transplants. 
I'll also show you um, some more work that we do in the laboratory looking at antibodies that a patient may produce and why that's important. And also about how we match and assess the final compatibility of our patients and donors. So this is the um, deceased donor process. And what I've done is highlighted in red the points in the, in the, the flow of the process where H&I scientists are working and their tests are required before the next stage in the process can go ahead. So first of all, the, um, the nurses for organ donation um, would identify a donor. And then a small blood sample is sent to the HLA laboratory um, in order for the scientists there to undertake the HLA typing. And um, it's essential that this whole process is um, as quick as possible. So the H&I scientists are on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in order to undertake this important work. So the HLA typing is done, and then the HLA type of the donor is sent to NHS blood and transplant, where they will match that particular um, donor's HLA type to all the patients waiting on the transplant waiting list for that kidney. And they will try and find as close a match as possible in order to allocate the kidney. So once the potential recipient is identified, um, the transplant unit is informed, and then samples are taken um, from the recipient, and they go to the H&I laboratory to undertake a final test of compatibility, which is the cross-match, before the transplant can go ahead. And it's the result of that cross-match which will determine whether or not that particular patient receives that transplant. So the HLA typing that's undertaken must be done in a, as quick a time as possible. And the technique that we use is extracting DNA from the small blood sample that we um, receive and using um, a system to focus on the particular piece of the DNA that is um, coding for the HLA genes that we're interested in. And we can do this using a technique called polymerase chain reaction, which makes multiple copies of the DNA, um, and it allows us to define a person's HLA type. The technique essentially works by using a primer, which is a small fragment of DNA, and an enzyme called TAC polymerase. And this enzyme is a remarkable enzyme. It allows new pieces of DNA to be made. And uh, we can use a series of different primers to target different parts of the, the, the DNA and establish a person's HLA type. And by using um, DNA, it means that the, the quality of the sample is not important. We can extract DNA from any cell. So the technique works where if you have binding at the important three prime end, you get amplification. And if that three prime end is not bound, then you have no amplification. And by using a range of um, mix, uh, PCR mixes, we can determine um, the person's tissue type. We use a number of um, pieces of kit to do this. We have thermal cycler shown over on the far side. And then after about two and a half hours in the um, PCR program, the, we then load the PCR reaction mixes onto um, a gel which separates the DNA based on their, the size of the, the DNA fragments. And we can then visualize that using um, a UV uh, light box, really, and a camera system. And this is the sort of product um, gel that the scientists are interpreting. You will see along each line a series of bands, all um, of similar size, all running at a similar level. And those are our control primers. That's telling us that our reaction has worked properly, that we've got all the components of the reaction there and everything has worked nicely. You will also see highlighted additional bands in the gel. And those are the specific PCR products from the different um, primer mixes that are used.
So this person's tissue type um, can be established because we have um, specific products in some of the lanes as I've identified. Now, there's the second lane from the far side has primers that detect the tissue type A2. And a little way along are two primer mixes that detect the tissue type A24. So because those have produced positive um, reactions, we can establish that this particular person's tissue type is A2 and A24. And we can go on through the range of primer mixes so that we can establish the full tissue type of the individual. Now this process takes between three to four hours from receipt of the blood sample to the um, HLA type being available to, um, to the organ donation transplant unit. So I've shown you that this part of the service that um, scientists provide are required before any transplant can go ahead and be allocated to a recipient. In addition to that HLA typing, we also do a lot of work for patients on the transplant waiting list to identify any HLA antibodies that those patients may have produced. Now, um, people can produce antibodies when they are exposed to foreign HLA. And you may be exposed to foreign HLA if you have a blood transfusion. You may be exposed to foreign HLA if you've had multiple pregnancies where women can develop HLA antibodies directed against the paternally inherited HLA antigens expressed on the fetus. And in fact, it was through this process of antibody production in multiparous women that um, the first antibody or HLA typing reagents were actually produced. So the problem for patients on the waiting list, if they have a lot of HLA antibodies, is that these antibodies, as I've shown in the graft rejection process, can start to attack the, the transplanted organ. And because we're allocating kidneys um, on the basis of a patient or a donor's tissue type, we need to make sure that the patient hasn't developed any HLA antibodies directed against any of the HLA antigens expressed on that donor kidney. Because if that was the case, then if the transplant went ahead with no further testing, the transplant would be rejected. Because we do have to do a further test of compatibility, that test will be positive and the transplant won't be able to proceed. And so the kidney will then need to be offered to somebody else, which means the whole process is extended rather a lot. So we need to accurately identify the antibodies that are, all the patients have on the waiting list. And we do this for every patient every three months to make sure we maintain an up-to-date record of their antibodies. And we use a process based on Luminex technology. These are polystyrene beads. And um, on the surface of these beads, we immobilize an HLA antigen. And we can use a mixture of these beads with different HLA antigens on the surface so that we can identify which antigens a patient may have made antibodies against. So here we have a bead with our HLA antigen on the surface, shown in blue, and the patient sera that we're going to test. So if this antigen was, was an HLA A2 antigen and our patient had antibodies directed against A2, then their antibody would bind to that bead. We can then use a secondary antibody, which is um, an anti-human antibody, which just allows us to detect that patient antibody binding. And we can run the whole thing through the Luminex analyzer and using this technology, we can very accurately define the HLA antibodies that patients have developed. And you'll see later on that this technology has allowed us to expand the donor pool into far riskier transplants um, in the antibody-incompatible setting. Finally, um, the last test before the transplant can go ahead is the cross-match. Now, it was Paul Terasaki back in 1964 that developed the um, cytotoxic cross-match test. 
And these tests are now performed in Terasaki trays and they're in effect undertaking the transplant in the tray. And I'll show you what we do in order to undertake this test. So we mix um, patient sera that we have from the antibody testing that we do with donor lymphocytes. Usually those white cells have been derived from a spleen sample that we receive from the donor in the laboratory and we can um, extract the, the white cells from that spleen sample. So we mix very small amount of patient serum and donor cells in the wells of a tray. And if the patient has any antibodies that are directed against the donor HLA antigens, those antibodies will bind to the surface of those donor cells. So in effect, we're mimicking in the tray what might happen if the transplant went ahead. We then use a number of reagents and a dye in order to visualise whether we have antibody binding to the cell or no antibody binding. If we do have antibody binding, the reagent that we use, uh, part of the immune um, cascade called complement, will actually break down the cell membrane and allow the dye that we use to enter the cell and it will fluoresce red. If there is no antibody binding, then the dye cannot enter the cell and the cells fluoresce green. And we can look at this down um, a microscope. So you will see here um, three pictures of a, a cytotoxic crossmatch. The picture on the far side is a nice green negative crossmatch where all the cells are nice and alive and if that was the result um, of the crossmatch in the transplant setting then the transplant would be able to go ahead. On the other side we have a very strong positive reaction. All the cells are red so that means that we've got antibody binding and if that transplant went ahead that transplant would be rejected very quickly. And in the middle panel we have a weaker reaction but you can still see a number of cells that have been stained red so we've still got antibody binding and again if the transplant went ahead we would get rejection. I just warn you the next slide is a little bit gory possibly um, but this is what we're trying to avoid. I did warn. <laughs> um, this is a hyperacute rejection response. Usually we want a kidney to be nice and pink um, when we transplant it. This kidney has just had the blood vessels connected and you will see lots of black coagulating blood within the kidney. That is where circulating preformed donor-specific antibodies have caused the blood to, to um, congeal and the kidney will be rejected, which is why we do these compatibility tests before any transplant can go ahead. So I've talked you through the deceased donor process um, for, for transplantation. And um, this is the, the form of donation that many patients on the transplant waiting list are, are waiting for. But since the advent of the Human Tissue Act in 2006, there are a number of other options available for patients who need um, a kidney transplant. Um, a patient may be able to have a transplant from a live donor that may be um, a relative, a friend, and there's a, a lot of um, workup that needs to be done to assess the compatibility between the patient and their potential live donor. Interestingly, since 2006, there has been an increase in the number of altruistic kidney donors that have come forward. So these are individuals who want to be assessed to donate a kidney to an unknown recipient and I'll, I'll show you how that um, work has um, progressed. We also have a paired exchange and more recently antibody incompatible transplants and these are the challenging, if you like, the, the concepts of transplant immunology that I've spent time telling you about today. So I'll just talk for the last part of the lecture just very briefly about how the scientists are helping to facilitate this range of um, additional donors for transplant. 
This slide will show you the number of living donors um, over the last decade in the UK, shown in grey. And then you'll see numbers of different categories of deceased donors shown in the two colours of blue. So you'll see that transplants using living donors has increased quite significantly over the last few years. And when we look more closely at the nature of those living donors, we can see that initially, um, back in 2001, those um, living donors were either relatives or they were unrelated and directed, so maybe a spouse donating to their um, husband or wife. And then gradually we start to get the more complex um, transplants coming in, so that by 2004 and 2005 we're starting to get HLA antibody incompatible and ABO incompatible transplants going ahead. So that might be uh, a recipient who is blood group O receiving a kidney from their live donor that is blood group A. Now, at the beginning of this lecture, I said that those types of transplants would be rejected. But as we are able to um, facilitate the immune response a little bit more, to manage it more carefully, we have developed techniques to actively remove those antibodies from the patient's circulation to help facilitate these antibody incompatible transplants. And we can also do that in the HLA setting. You'll see as we come into 2008-2009, shown in pink are the, donor, the transplants that have occurred through the paired exchange program and also those transplants occurring through altruistic donation. So the paired exchange um, program is run by NHS um, Blood and Transplant and um, Essentially, it's for recipients and donors, um, a, a live donor and a recipient who are perhaps antibody incompatible. So that might be that they're ABO incompatible or HLA incompatible. And they can register on this scheme and four times a year a matching run is undertaken where perhaps, as you'll see on the far side with the two-way exchange, um, the donor from pair one is going to donate their kidney to the recipient of pair two. And the donor from pair two will donate their kidney to the recipient of pair one. This way facilitating transplantation for both of those patients that otherwise have an incompatible donor. We can do this in a three-way exchange as well. And we can also do this through, um, and this is a relatively new introduction, through a short, a short altruistic donor chain. So an altruistic donor can donate their kidney to recipient one to facilitate a transplant. But the live donor pair that may be antibody incompatible with recipient one can donate their kidney to recipient on the transplant waiting list thereby one altruistic donor facilitating um, two kidney transplants. These types of transplant have to be very closely managed so that um, knife goes to skin, if you like, at the same time in both donor centres um, to avoid any last-minute cold feet when perhaps one um, transplant has been done and then the donor of that recipient then gets cold feet and doesn't want to donate. So it's very carefully managed and um, the process gives priority to those two-way exchanges that are less, less risky. And now we come to the antibody incompatible um, transplants and you will see that over the last sort of eight years or so, the numbers of transplants in this area have increased quite significantly. And this is largely because of the advances that have been made in antibody testing in the HNI laboratories um, that have helped to facilitate these HLA incompatible transplants. We use a technique that is a very sophisticated cross-match um, based on a similar technique um, to the one I've already described, but we use um, 
uh, a laser to identify antibody binding to cells using a flow cytometer. And this technique is very sensitive and allows us to monitor antibody binding um, to the donor cells in a far more um, accurate way. So patients who are going to have an HLA antibody incompatible transplant um, are given um, an immunosuppressive drug about a month before the transplant goes ahead. And that drug will target the B cells that are making those HLA antibodies. Um, and then about 10 days before the transplant goes ahead, they undergo a process called plasma exchange. And during this process, the antibodies that are in their circulating plasma are removed and they receive a fresh plasma back. And they undergo this process maybe five or six times to actively remove those HLA antibodies. Samples are taken to monitor before and after each round of plasma exchange so that the HNI laboratory and the scientists there are monitoring the antibody levels um, until we feel that the antibody levels are at a stage where it is safe to go ahead and transplant and we're not going to get that hyperacute rejection of the transplant. We then monitor antibody levels post-transplant in order to make sure that they, they don't start creeping up. And this is an example of how the, the donor-specific antibodies for this particular patient have been removed through the series of plasma exchanges before the transplant went ahead and how they remained quite low post-transplant. The numbers shown on the, the graph are of, um, a measure of the creatinine, which is a measure of kidney function. The higher the number, the worse the kidney function. So you will see that for this particular patient, the creatinine level was 210 pre-transplant. But after transplant, the creatinine levels dropped to around 50 to 80, showing that the transplant was working well, the kidney was functioning, in spite of the fact that this patient had very high levels of HLA donor-specific antibodies pre-transplant. So these types of transplants are challenging what was thought to be the, the concepts of immunology a little bit. They are, are higher risk, but what they are allowing is for patients who maybe have been waiting for quite some time for a, a deceased um, donor transplant to give them another option for transplant. So just to summarise, I hope I've shown you um, that it's the HLA molecules that are the main target of the immune response against foreign tissue, and that HLA compatibility is essential if we are to improve the kidney transplant outcome. The cross-match that's undertaken by scientists in um, the HNI laboratories is the final test of compatibility between patient and donor. And it allows us to determine whether the transplant might be rejected and therefore avoid that hyperjection, um, hyperacute rejection reaction and also inform the transplant unit of any potential immunological risk post-transplant. So H&I scientists um, ensure that recipients and donors are matched as optimally as possible that HLA antibodies are identified in patients on the waiting list, and this helps to avoid hyperacute rejection of the transplanted organs, and also helps to manage um, subsequent rejection reactions that may occur post-transplant. And the work of these scientists is helping to support in initiatives to expand the donor pool and allow transplantation to be an option for more patients requiring um, a kidney uh, transplant. So I hope I've shown you that perhaps um, pathologists are in fact secret heroes and they do have a nobility of purpose. And finally, just a few take-home points to remember. There are more than 7,000 patients in the UK currently needing a kidney transplant. And of these, 700 will die each year, that's two a day, while they're waiting for an organ for transplantation. And it's the scientists and 
clinicians and surgeons that ensure that every kidney transplanted has the best chance of success. You can find out more by visiting this website. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much indeed. That was fascinating, and you packed a lot of rich detail into a, a short piece. Um, I'm fascinated. I wonder if I might abuse my prerogative and, and pitch off with the first oh, question. Of if course. We've got some time. Um, the, <clears throat> the data are terrifying um, in terms of encouraging people to donate. But if we think about the uh, scientific background to it, what's the biggest um, technical biomedical challenge facing histocompatibility uh, in immunogenetics today, H&I? I think um, there's a lot of work in trying to reduce the time that's taken um, before the transplant can go ahead. So the, um, the time between taking the, the kidney from the, the donor and transplanting it is the, the cold ischemia time. And there's a lot of data that shows that the shorter that time frame is, the better the outcome might be for that kidney transplant. So I think one of the challenges for scientists working in my field is to try and, and find ways of speeding up the testing that is sometimes absolutely essential to do um, in order to reduce that, that time. So that's one of the challenges that we're looking at at the moment, really. Oh, no, no, there are many organs that can be transplanted, um, which is why you will see when there was um, the number of donors and the number of transplants is not the same. So, um, you know, there are um, kidneys, liver, heart, lung, cornea. There's lots of different form of tissue and bone that can be donated for, for, for transplant. Um, small bowel, intestine. So, although initially it was the kidney that, um, most most work was done on. Um, subsequent to that, there are many organs now that can be transplanted successfully, even faces now. What are the uh, kind of statistics? Is kidney the, the main? Kidney is still the largest number, yes, by far. But um, yeah, there are, there's a, a fair number, and, and in the um, the small bowel and that that those numbers are increasing now as te technology is improving as well, yeah. Okay, so the, the question is, what effect um, does age of the donor have on the transplant and, and the compatibility of it? Um, the way in which donors are, are allocated, we try and match for age a little bit as well. Um, obviously, if a donor is very young, we will try, as well as HLA matching, to match that to a recipient that is younger. But, um, and, and so conversely, if the donor is quite elderly, then it might be matched to a more elderly patient on the waiting list, because obviously the kidney function doesn't tend to be as good. So, um, but there isn't... If the kidney function is good, there isn't a, necessarily a, an age limit, if you like, to donation. It's more about the function of the kidney itself. Well, I hope I may have retired by then, but um, um, you know, the, the question is, uh, with new technology, particularly in the stem cell setting, might we be able to um, grow our own organs to be replaced, essentially? Um, 
I think there is a lot, there is an awful lot of work um, developing in that field. So there may well be, I mean, an organ is a very complex um, group of tissue, and I'm sure that work will start in perhaps the simpler tissues first of all um, to develop in that way. Um, there has been a lot of work trying to um, manufacture, if you like, um, red blood cells, for example, so that we don't need to perhaps continually rely on the altruism of blood donors. Um, but again, that, that work is quite difficult just to produce a red blood cell. So whilst I'm not ruling it out, I think it will, there may well be a place for it. Whether we will be able to expand it as ideally one might like to, um, I'm not sure. Toxemia in pregnancy. Um, what the where where a, a patient may have a, um, problems with their kidney function in. Right. Okay. Um, I'm not aware of any transplants going ahead in um, for patients who are pregnant. So um, they may well go ahead before or after the pregnancy. But because of the um, immunosuppression that's required, I, I'm not aware of anything um, that, that might actually require a kidney transplant to treat preeclampsia, I'm afraid. I don't, I don't know. It's not really my, my field. I'm a scientist rather than a, me a medic. I don't know if you are aware. Oh, I'm not even a Oh, you're not even a scientist, Sam. Okay, well... So you mean um, if if perhaps the the age was reduced or uh, widened? Um, the yes, yes, of course. The, the donors on um, the the bone marrow donor registers, um, whilst um, they they're recruited to uh, to donate primarily in their sort of early 30s and 40s, they can actually donate much later on um, if, they, if they wish to do so. So I think that although they're recruiting at that age, it's because they want them to stay on for further. So um, certainly in my own laboratory, we utilise donors in their, their 50s as well to donate stem cells for patients requiring that. So I think, I think it's more about the amount of resource that is required to register a patient if they're 49 and they may not be able to donate for very many years. There are many thousands of different HLA types in the worldwide population and um, the reason for that is because the HLA system has evolved to allow us to fight a whole range of pathogens. But you will find um, particular HLA types are more common in different ethnic populations. And um, what we do with regards to organ allocation is allocate on a very broad basis. So similar HLA types are allocated together. And there's a lot of data now to show that that form of allocation is of benefit to the transplant um, long term. But there are multiple HLA types, which is why bone marrow transplant registers have 15 million donors worldwide. Well, I think we, and this is a very swift question.
Uh, yes, that's true. <laughs> Um, I have heard of a, uh, yeah, I've, I have heard um, of a, a heart going to um, a, a li living heart donation to two donors. I mean, one one kidney to two donors, no. Um, liver, yes. So a liver lobe can be um, transplanted, but not a not a kidney, no. Sometimes when um, the kidney donor is very small they may actually transplant the two kidneys into one recipient, but not the other way around. I think we've taxed Dr. Sage enough that <laughs> has a remarkable uh, breadth of expert, uh, expertise. Um, I'd like to draw your attention to our evaluation sheets. Evaluation sheets. Um, cards. Cards. Um, I'd like to thank our speaker, of course. Thank it's you. a wonderful and rich paper. Thank our speech and text colleagues uh, for helping us out and the Royal College of Pathologists um, for co-badging this event, Hayley, who runs it for us, and to you for attending and for your attention and your very good questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.